0: Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture Podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we had another interesting conversation. It kind of hit close to home. Uh, One of our bear colleagues.
1: Yeah, Preston. Today we talked with Dr. Randy Myers, who's an agronomic solutions manager with Bayer, and in his role, he not only helps support the use of fungicides and understand how we make those recommendations, but he also gets to look at the new molecules that may be a product, you know, the next new big thing that might be coming 10 years down the road. Yeah, it was really neat to hear
0: his history and how he moved all over the place, including Germany, where he's done some of that early pipeline. Molecular research Uh, but today's podcast specifically we talked to Randy about his work uh, some of the current and upcoming diseases including tar spot and his take on those Uh, I thought it was also interesting to hear his take on application methods if you are interested as a listener in doing more of a deep dive in tar spot I'd encourage you to go back and reference episode 54 with dr. Dean Melvick of the University of Minnesota um, and then also episode 56 with dr. Matthew Helm of Purdue um, both of those podcasts are specifically centered around tar spot and definitely interesting from a from a learning perspective
1: yeah i you know we have 70 some odd episodes now and uh, we really want to encourage all of our listeners we thank you for your your listening and we also want to encourage you to go and uh, leave us some feedback rate us and that will help us pick up some more new listeners so without further ado let's jump
0: right into the conversation with randy well, Randy, welcome to the podcast. To start off here, could you tell our guests a little bit about your background, educational history, and what you're up to today?
2: Oh, well, there's almost a half hour right there. <laughs> I, my name is Randy Myers. I'm the Agronomic Solutions Manager for Bayer. And in my particular role right now, I work with chemists and a network of colleagues around the globe. We take experimental active ingredients and we look at them on different pathogens, different crops, different environments, trying to characterize the molecule, understand what it does, how it does it, and then extrapolate that into whether it has any real world utility. So it used to be at one time we were looking for a magic molecule which controlled everything. Well, that's not realistic anymore. Now we're no longer looking at it in that fashion. We're trying to find out the strengths and weaknesses because... Almost none of these products will be sold as solo materials. They'll be sold in combinations. We want multiple modes of action in, in there because from the grower's perspective, it controls the pathogens better. If we're attacking the pathogen from different directions at different points of his life cycle, we do a better job. So growers like it that way, but also resistance management is a really critical piece. So what we're looking at is trying to look at these molecules. How are they strong? How do we put this together to have a product which meets all these requirements and bring something new to growers and to agriculture? So that's what I do currently. My my background, grew up on a farm in Iowa, a corn soybean farm, of course in, in Iowa, it's, that's pretty self-evident. And undergraduate school at Iowa State and my master's and PhD at the University of Illinois. And I was recruited during graduate school to buy Moby at that time, which is bare. To, to run a research station near Urbana, Illinois, I moved to that. I've been with the company now for 36 years and I've had wow. multiple responsibilities. I ran research laboratories in Germany. I've been multiple roles in marketing and, and research. So very background, but fungicides have become the, the main primary focus. Of what we're doing is we're, is fungicides have become much more critical to our ag- agronomic practices. When I grew up on the farm, we didn't use fungicides. Uh, that's because our agronomic practices are different now than they were then. When I first told my dad, he came out of college and I said, "Dad, we should be thinking about using fungicides." My dad, who had been farming for decades—I mean, he took over the family farm after the eighth grade—he's like, "Yeah, we need fungicides. So we haven't eaten them before. What's the deal here?" <laughs> well, I had to make sure he understood that we don't farm now the same way that we did back then. Where look at our 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 planting rates, seeding rates, uh, row widths, tillage practices. the the the, a lot of these pathogens survive in the crop residue and like like you know tar spot gray leaf spot northern corn leaf by they survive in the in the residue and a lot of these racehorse hybrids they produce a lot of of residue on each year and even crop rotation doesn't satisfy that need because as you go you plant corn soybeans you'll still have crop residue from that prior corn crop even if you have a soybean crop in between uh, the in the sequence So there's residue there, the inoculums there. So because we're farming differently now, diseases have become more important and trying to get everything off that acre with all the expensive inputs we've got, fungicides are now a very important tool.
1: It's an interesting point about the differences in farming. I think one simple difference that people can kind of wrap their head around is the population. You mentioned the population. You talked, you know, 20,000 years ago or whatever the populations were, when we're going upwards of 40,000 now, so we've doubled the populations in a lot of cases. And we can just think about that from like a human disease standpoint, when there's a lot more people in a given area, you're going to have more disease spread from place to place. And it's the same concept with plants, right?
2: Yeah, now now you, I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself a little bit here but back when I was a farm we first started we were wire checking corn yet where you're planting in hills you know and the oh, populations wow. we're talking about something in the teens. And then, as you start you, moving upward, then you were getting in the 20s, mid 20s, upper 20s, and it starts, keeps moving upward. So the population has gone up and the row widths have gotten more narrow because we're trying to close in the caps and to help with both yield, but also to help control weeds that might be emerging late. We want to canopy rapidly. But in the process of doing that, we now are trapping with the, the crop residue on top, too. We used to moldboard plow everything. Right? When I was a kid, we would. Every cornfield we'd plow if we had a chance until the ground froze up, we couldn't plow anymore. Well, you don't do that anymore. So all that residue is right there with the close rows and high populations, we create a little, almost like a a nursery, a greenhouse underneath the canopy, which is ideal for the development of diseases. So all these things come together and the role of a fungicide has become a very important tool for growers.
1: I don't wanna get too deep into the weeds here, Randy, but at the very beginning, you mentioned something interesting. To me, anyway, you mentioned new molecules and screening new molecules for for fungicidal effects. So, where do those new molecules come from?
2: Uh, that's a good question. We have different ways that we can set up testing for this. So For one of the things, for instance, when I was in Monheim, what I was doing was helping set up some micro screening, where we could have enzymatic tests looking for modes of action. So we would. Here's a critical key something or other in the pathway. For instance, if we look at two of the important classes of chemistries of fungicides now, we have SDHIs, that's succinate dehydrogenase inhibitors, and strabiliurins. Now, they both work by inhibiting electron transport in the mitochondria, but at different sites. And so they have different reactions that come after that. Well, what we can do is we can take an enzyme or something that's very specific that we're trying to target and we can access libraries of compounds. A lot of these come from pharmaceutical companies or whatever, and we run them through these screen, these screens. We have micro screens and, and medium, low and uh, high and medium throughput practices to try to see if, hey, does this molecule have any impact on that enzyme, for instance? If it does, cool. Now, we'll take that enzyme, and it's great if it works in the cell, but the tricky part is, agronomically, we have to be able to figure out a way to get it to that site of action. So if we spray it on the leaf surface, how do we get it through the cuticle, get it inside the plant, get it inside the cell, get it inside the organelle, If that's where the enzyme is at. So all these things take time. So we work with the chemists, we'll take something which may show activity on the enzyme, then work with the chemists to see if we can modify that molecule to try to make something that's that has actual agronomic utility. So we're screening hundreds of thousands of compounds every year trying to find these different things. Now we'd have different targets right now, we have only a, well, there's three primary modes of action that we have in our arena. We've got triazole, strabiliuns, and SDHIs. Well, strabiliuns really, they're electron transport inhibitors, uh, they're, it's QOIs, they call them quinone oxide inhibitors, and then SDHIs, they're also inhibit electron transport, but a different place. So we have these ma- three main classes that we work with, but as we look at new modes of action. And we're trying to find here's another critical thing, a little pathway that's in the fungus. So let's see if we can attack that. And in our pipeline, we have a lot of new molecules, new modes of action that we're working on. Now, whether or not they become agronomically important, that we're not sure. I mean, it it also varies quite a bit. Let's take SDHIs, for instance. I mentioned that class. Prior until the past few years, nobody, almost nobody in the Midwest knew what an SDHI was because it tended to be narrow in spectrum. They have really good activity on particular diseases, but it's not a really broad range. Well, because of that, there's really only one SDHI that was, has used any extent in the Midwest, and that was Bosclid from BSF that came out and is for white mold. So if you didn't have white mold in your soybeans, you didn't use the product. Well, now we have new SDHI chemistries, which have a broader spectrum of activity, which now has utility in our markets in the Midwest. the the mode of action has been around since the 60s. So it's not new, but what's new is that the the activity of these molecules suddenly now has utility in our markets. So that's why we're, we're, as we're looking on a global aspect, we're trying to find out what these things can do and see how we can modify either the activity, work with the chemists to see if we can get inside the plant faster or whatever, trying to make some changes to then create some, some real resolutions for some problems that growers have.
1: Randy, you mentioned different modes of action. And you mentioned the importance of that. Can you can you just elaborate on that just a little bit? Why is it important for growers when they're using a fungicide in their corner, of their soybeans, or other crops? Why is it important to have those multiple modes of action?
2: Well, from, from a grower's perspective, it just works better. You'll get a each molecule attacks me. Well, it's a different class of chemistry. They will work at different sites of action or different life cycle stages of or sites of action in the fungus. So by attacking the fungus in different ways, it makes it more consistent. And each chemistry has a more a kind of an optimal range of environmental conditions. The physiochemical characteristics, of the molecule, how does it interact with the environment, with the plant? That changes a little bit. By having multiple modes of action, I increase the sweet spot for the, for the product. So it just works better. So the grower wants that to make it perform better. Now, from a resistance standpoint, we have, everybody knows about resistance problems we have with with weeds and with insects. Well, guess what? It's been a problem for fungicides also for a long time. If you go out to areas in California where they've used fungicides for you know for generations, they've burned out chemistries where they're totally useless. And I will say the new hey I got I can give you a list of diseases and crops where SDHIs are just have no utility whatsoever. So we don't we haven't had that problem yet. But if we think about where we have Strabiliurins have been a backbone for our fungicides for quite some time, right from the very beginning. And if we look in soybeans, at frog eye leaf spot, it's a real big problem in the South. It's probably the most pervasive disease in soybeans. We've got strabilion resistant populations in the Mid-South, and Arkansas, Louisiana, where if you spray a strabilion by itself, it is worthless. So it's important to be able to have good productivity by having overlapping modes of action. And... To make sure that we don't get resistance to developing other places. sterbiliurins—they're they, over 90% of corn fungicide applications have a strabiliurin component, and about two-thirds of soybean applications have a strabiliurin component. And that's because they're broad in spectrum, have relatively long residual activity, and they also trigger physiological reactions in the plant. So when there's limited resources available, the plant is more productive and does better. We've higher chlorophyll content, lower dark respiration rates, all these different things that can help the plant be more productive. So as we look at our data. Even if we have lower, no disease pressure, you can still get a yield lift because the physiological changes triggered by the chemistry. So that's why it's critical to put these things together because there's multiple things we're trying to do with these products to, to have a contribution to the bottom line for the grower. Some of the other things when people talk about was it just about foliar diseases. Now we're talking about other things too, stock quality. Uh, You may, having good strong stocks may not contribute one extra bushel to the yield, but if it improves your efficiency going through the fields, that contributes to your bottom line. When we're combining, we are burning fuel by the hour, not by the acre, by the hour. So if I have to slow down because my stocks are lodged a little bit and now they're kind of sitting at angles, I have to slow down a couple of miles an hour to be able to get all those ears into the you know the header. I've just increased my field bill for that acre, and it may be keeping me out of other fields, which may have questionable stock quality, whether it is like if the corns going down, there's nothing more frustrating for a farmer than in the fall, having to go through a field one direction, you go go down, go slowly, and then go down empty and keep coming back because the stocks are all leaning down at such an angle that he can't get them from coming from the backside. That's serious frustration. So, that stock quality, it may not increase to have add a, one bushel of yield, but it can contribute to the bottom line in other ways as well. So it's, it's all a part of, it's kind of a jigsaw puzzle with all, an amalgam of all these different pieces coming together and how they interact. Trying to say what this is, what this contributes all these different factors, it may be a little bit too narrow because it's how this works in concert with additional factors. And every year is different. So trying to quantify what that value is, that's a really difficult thing to do. That's why it takes time for people to understand on their farms, how these come together best for them.
0: Randy, that's great information. Just to kind of maybe set the stage from a disease perspective, could you speak to like the potential yield loss associated with some of these diseases. I know whenever I open up my Twitter feed, Tar Spot, it's Tar Spot tweet after tweet. Uh, Maybe even you could describe some of the most economically, potentially significant diseases that farmers face.
2: Well, and and that's kind of a moving target. So it's not quite that easy to to deal it down real well pressing because I have it depends on the genetics. We've got diseases like gray leaf spot. That's the most pervasive disease in corn. we got northern corn leaf blight, which is also widely seen. Northern corn leaf light is becoming much more problematic in the south. Last year it was a real problem down south. So just because it's got northern in the name doesn't mean it's limited to the northern, northern geographies. But those diseases overwinter in the crop residue. And so because they've been around for quite a while, part of the screening process, and we're looking for genetics for our hybrids, we are looking for some degree of, of resistance or tolerance to the presence of these pathogens. And so that varies by genetics so those two diseases are something that we we have to work with and it's important to be able to to have additional tools to control this these this variety of pathogens that we have to deal with usually we're not dealing with one disease usually it's a function of multiple diseases and they come in at different times during the season so trying to figure out how best to overlay the tools to control them. That's a critical piece. But genetics is an important tool to help keep some of these diseases down. And that is in, that's endemic to our selection process. And you get something like tar spot, which pops up. Now, tar spot, it's a kind of a new disease. When it first showed up, it was found in some central Illinois and some central Indiana counties. And I read about it in a Purdue newsletter. I go, Ooh, geez, new disease. Well, is said this is endemic to the high valley areas of Central America. So I contacted my colleagues down in Central America and said, "Hey guys, we got this new disease down here. We found out you guys have been dealing with it for a long time. It's called tar spot, and you know Phytophthora is it a problem?" They're going, "Eh, not that that big a deal." I go, "Okay, cool." So it went along my merry way. Well, the problem is because tar spot is endemic down there. In their selection process, their genetics they had resistance in their genetics. And so mm. it, as a thing goes along and they're making selections, the ones that are more tolerant, are the ones that, which, which progress through the pathways. Well, in the Midwest, tar spot was never in the selection process. So in our Midwestern genetics, we don't have that level of resistance. So although it's, it's no big deal for them because they've been dealing with it year after year, brand new for us, suddenly wham. And it, it, it the, the disease it, it tends to like kind of cooler conditions. So it, and it, it'll develop differently every year. If we go back to 18, that was the first year. We first found it 15, and then 18, that was the first year that there were some widespread fields that got hammered pretty hard. The disease started to pop up. People were finding lesions in June, end of June. That's pretty early. So it was well before tassel, and that disease had a lot of time to develop. And we had kind of a cooler summer. So the coolness also plays a role here. So because the nighttime temperatures, that plays a role in, spore release because the fungi are releasing their spores late in the evening because that they need a certain amount of certain time of leaf wetness for the infection process to be completed so the spores are released late in the evening so they don't want to waste the spores waste energy so uh, over time they've they've adapted to releasing the spores late evening to have the longest period of leaf wetness to complete the infection process well part of that is also temperature if you, like this year, we've got areas with lots of moisture, but they haven't seen as much disease because temperatures have been so high. So temperature also plays a critical role in whether or not spores are released and how that process happens. But so that 18 was a, was kind of a cooler year. So tar spot popped up and it caused some really bad problems in fields all across in parts of the Midwest. 19 and 20, not so bad. 21 came up, boom, hammer. And because it was that heavy, and as a, the, the geography of the disease starts to expand as well, now more acres are at risk. We were seeing 100 bushel yield differences between treated and untreated in 21. When you look at the diseases wow. like, gray leaf spot, or northern corn leaf blight, you can't see that kind of a devastating impact whether or not you use the fungus. I'd have to go back to the 70s, which is before your guys' time. But back in the 70s when southern corn leaf blight was a problem, most companies were using Texas male sterile cytoplasm in the production of their inbreds. And that cytoplasm was really vulnerable to southern corn leaf blight. So there were a few years where it just tore through the corn badly and companies stopped using that tool. But that that was a, a bad situation. Then, closest thing I can equate then is we go look at tar spot. It's it can be a devastating disease. Not only does it reduce the yields in that fashion, but it also impacts stock quality. The, the thing about the disease is it tends it, it's a little different from most diseases that farmers might be familiar with. Look at northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. They need you know something in the neighborhood of 12 hours of leaf moisture for those spores to be able to land the leaf and complete the infection process. Tar spot only needs about seven. So as you move later in the summer, when it gets drier, a lot of diseases start to kind of calm down. This is one which keeps on going because not needing that long period of leaf wetness allows it to become more problematic, even when conditions are not as conducive in people's minds for actual disease development. That's a little different twist that we have to get used to. Tar spot and another disease, southern rust, that's another one which also requires a shorter period of leaf wetness to complete the infection process. That's why those two diseases tend to crop up later in the season as they're developing and suddenly they can be real big hammers. So those are two of the biggest yield driving diseases that we've got out there. Like I said, a big piece of that is because we just haven't had the same selection of our of our genetic in our genetics to help keep those diseases down.
1: Randy, you you reference resistance. you also, I think reference tolerance. And I think maybe there's some confusion out there about the, you know I, I think there's a scientific description of those two terms, but I think somewhat they're used interchangeably among you know farmers and and maybe even uh, companies that are selling these products. So first off, can you kind of delineate between the two and give a brief description of of which is what? And then also can you talk a little bit about how, you know, we have tar spot, as you mentioned, there's, there's uh, resistant or tolerant hybrids down in, in Mexico or wherever it's endemic to, um, but now that it's moved into the Midwest and it's not in our germplasm, what do we do about that to try to get some of that uh, resistance into our Midwestern adapted germplasm?
2: Well, resistance and tolerance, they are, they're used interchangeably, but tolerances usually mean that it, that it can still be productive even though this thing is present. And resistance is a little different tool in that you can, the, the disease is excluded or precluded from the infection. So it kind of works a little bit differently in that way. But uh, it, the, the genetics are present. They were part of the selection process in Central America. We have to, we don't have those genes present. We've got, we we do have the genes identified, and but we have to integrate them into our inbreds. So that takes time, it takes seasons. So, we won't have true resistant hybrids for a number of years yet. So, that's why. And if you look across companies, there there are no truly resistant hybrids in the Midwest. Now, there are different degrees of tolerance. We have some which stay greener or a little longer. One of the things about this disease is when it sets in, it can be devastating to the leaf surface. So, you can go when you there's some data that CIMMIT generated, that's a global organization on corn and cereals. They they were showing that they've got some data showing that from in two weeks you can go from a green field to a dead field. And I've got some good slides. Marty Chilvers at Michigan State University has some nice slides showing how this thing progresses with some some very a series of photographs taken with drones. So but you it goes down fast. And that's one thing that's a little bit unusual. So with that loss of leaf surface, then now as a plant is going into grain fill, it wants to put a certain amount of photosynthate into the grain every single day. Well, if the leaves are present and producing all the photosynthate, cool, no problem. But if the leaves become damaged, whether it's by insects, diseases, hail, anything else, the plant's now handicapped. And so what it does, because it still wants to have access to those sugars, the carbohydrate, it'll go into the stock and take carbohydrate and put that in the grain. In doing so, the stock becomes weakened. Now it's subject to lodging, stock rots, and all kinds of issues, which then compounds a whole different aspect that growers have to contend with. as we're looking at the genetics, it'll take some time to get those genetics put into our inbreds that we've got That we, before we start making commercial hybrids. It'll take time, and it'll be a few years yet before we can have truly resistant hybrids. And there are differences among the hybrids in how well they tolerate the disease. So that's an important thing to note. But fungicides are still the most important first-line defense against this disease because we don't have truly resistant hybrids yet.
0: That's a fascinating conversation, Randy. Before this call, you mentioned maybe there's some new diseases on the horizon that are starting to generate some some interest.
2: We had we've got a lot of the old ones and that that have been out there for a while, but in, so they're becoming more important at various stages. One that's been out there is is eye spot, and that's what growers have seen. They're aware of it, and something that has recently been confused with eye spot is curvilaria. It's So that's a genus. It's a it's a new disease which has kind of cropped up and becoming becoming more widespread. And we're getting a lot of questions about whether or not our fungicides can control it. Because this disease has not been widespread yet, we don't have good data on what the the potential impact might be, how devastating it might be. It won't be like a tar spot, I'm sure, because it doesn't have that same characteristic. But how important can it be for yield contribution? And that we don't know yet. But we so we're trying to generate data on these diseases. We but it's kind of luck, because you put the trials out, hoping to get particular diseases, and then we just hope that curvilaria might be there, or if we have it from prior years, we'll assume there's inoculum there and we'll try to put something out. So we're trying to generate the data, but that's an ongoing process when you don't, we have a disease that's not as pervasive as some of the traditional ones. Well, we got new ones that are out there, and like the tar spot thing, that popped up, surprised everybody, and suddenly it turns our whole perception of, of fungicides on its head. So those kind of things can happen, that's critical for us then, especially from a global perspective, to be aware of the different pathogens and how they can come together and become a new problem. So help, help us a little bit in the front side of, as we're developing products. The, the whole product process, to take an active ingredient, a new material, it, it costs, about, it takes about 10 years and it costs about $300 million to get a new active ingredient on the marketplace. So that's a huge investment. And that requires that we be very proactive as we're putting these things together. When I'm looking at these experimental compounds, if I'm looking at something which may be better than other things that are on the market right now, but if it's not going to be in the market till 10 years from now, I need to be looking at it going, you know, that's kind of nice. It's cute. But put it on the shelf, guys, because by the time it would get to the market, it's not going to, to be relevant. And if you're going to have to recoup $300 million, that means you've got to make sure that it actually has some potential it can't be just an also-ran. So that's why as we progress through this, we're looking at developing new tools, those things also have to be coming into play as we make our selections.
1: My next question here, Randy, I guess could be a little bit, um, you know, I, I, I want to not give the wrong impression and, and uh, it's, it's about spraying and, and spray frequency and and um, you know, how do we spray every crop every year basically with fungicides? So there's, you know, some IPM recommendations that would say, Maybe not, but you know, a lot of farmers are spraying every crop every year, or at least with corn and soybeans. That typically would be our recommendation, I think, as TDRs, Preston and I both would make that recommendation based on the research we've seen. And of course, farmer might say, well, yeah, you're going to tell me that because you're a chemical company. So what, now, <laughs> w- what do you say to that? <laughs> well, it, it, they raise a lot of good points. And this is not a
2: one-size-fits-all situation because they have different diseases, different threats. It depends where you are geographically. For instance, southern rust, I mentioned that. That can be a real problem in some parts of the country. But southern rust doesn't survive in the United States. It, well, for the most part, it doesn't. And it actually has to blow up every single year. Well, the question is when it's going to arrive and where. So the, the lower-level jet stream tends to carry these spores up from Central America and, and Texas, Mexico, and the digestion kind of splits when you get around somewhere in Missouri and tends to go up the Ohio River Valley and then Missouri River Valley. So if you look at Nebraska and Southern Indiana, now it's become a point where Southern rust is a problem almost every single year. But if you squeeze in between Iowa, parts of Illinois, it's, it's more hit and miss. So those kind of diseases, then they, they, they kind of change the, the, the direction of, of, of where we're trying to go. We've got 90 million acres of corn, give or take. And each year we're treating somewhere around 20 plus million. So you wonder, well, what about the rest of them? Do they not need to be sprayed? Well, a big piece of that is most of the applications go out with, with aerial application, with airplanes and helicopters. And we just don't have enough planes to be able to treat all these acres in that short window. Usually the, the time frame we're looking about Bt to R2. That's kind of the seems to be the sweet spot for, for overall disease control. That's because that when the tassel comes out, all the leaves a plant is gonna have now are there. So we have full leaf tissue. Any, if you spray before tassel, because these products, when they say they're systemic, they move within the leaf that they hit. They move with the water floats, the tips and edges of the leaves that are out, but any new leaves that emerge after that unprotected. So usually we wait until all the leaves are out and spray. And you want to spray on the front end of that window because you want to protect it all the way into grain fill. So that's that VT to R2 window is when most of these sprays are made. Well, if we look at all these acres, that will be in that VT to R2 window as you go from Nebraska through Ohio. There's, there's the, the, the RMs for these things, relative maturity of these, maturity range of these is not that wide. There's a lot of corn that's right in that window at that time. And we don't have enough airplanes to, to spray all those acres. So there's only so many acres can be sprayed. And then with competition for soybean acres as well, we just can't treat all of them. So it's important to understand which fields do I spray? If I can't spray all my fields, which ones do I want to give priority to? And I've got a little checklist that I use saying, well, because a lot of these diseases survive in the crop residue. If I'm going corn on corn or soybeans on soybeans, then that can be a problem. If I've got a field of corn and I had heavy gray leaf spot in that field one year, I'm going to plant corn back into it, it's a pretty good chance that I'm going to have that same disease problematic there. So that means that field should get priority over one that I'm in a corn soybean rotation. So knowing what diseases you've had, if I, like I said, if I've got leaf spot in that field, then now I may have to make sure that I also look at my genetics. If I've got a hybrid, I want a plant, which may not be great against that disease. Hey, spray it. Uh, so you know the history of your field, you know where you've got stock issues and various things. So understand that what, what the risk is in that field and prioritize it as such. So there's a, a number of different factors that come into play there. We look at the weather and, and so forth. Uh, location, is it down in a river bottom somewhere versus up on top of a hill? Because if the more stagnant air where there's more moisture, disease can be more prevalent. So understanding what the conditions are that contribute to the disease, Means I need to pick out those fields and give them precedent. Where if I've only can, if I can only access a third of my acres, then those are the ones that I'll get the most return on my money. So trying to prioritize which fields you need to get to that's a critical piece. A lot of growers have gotten a little frustrated about because there is limited access to to aerial applications. A lot of growers are looking very hard at buying their own equipment. So if you go back 10 years ago. Over 90% of the corn sprays were going out by air. That percentage has dropped down. The last number I saw was just around 80%. And that's because a lot of guys are, are buying their own high-clearance equipment so they can control the timing of the application more precisely. So they're looking at ways to get over their fields and then not have to rely on hoping that an airplane can get to me and in a, in a nice time frame Because timing is so critical. Time is the most important thing for, for the result from a fungicide. you get the timing wrong it doesn't matter what else you do because you can't fix damage already done and if depending on the crop stage and the the, where the with the pathogen attacking all that comes together to make sure the timing has to be right well if you have your own sprayer you can control that timing better a lot of growers are going out buying their own high clearance equipment so that they have their fate in their own hands they can make better decisions now the downside is you cannot cover as many acres of ground rig as you can by air. So aerial application is absolutely critical for us to get to all these acres, but it depends on what tools are available and what the individual problem is the grower is trying to face as to how he needs to manage the disease issues.
0: I was going to ask if you had a preference between ground rig or aerial application. It sounds like the bigger question is, is the timing, right?
2: Yeah, timing is the most critical. Now, I get that question often where people say, well, which is better, ground rig or by air? Well, since time is the most critical thing, that's the one you have to think about. With a ground rig, I cannot cover as many acres. You also, if the field is wet and soupy, you're not getting in with a ground rig, where with an airplane, you can get over top of it. So that comes into play. The quality of the application though, so timing is the most important, but quality of application is the second most important thing. If I, my timing's right and I've got a great fungicide, but I don't get it to where it needs to be on the plant, I'm not gonna have the performance. So when you look at an aerial application, a lot of these guys are spraying at two gallons per acre. And there is no good substitute for carrier volume. So I prefer to have, you know, three is better than, than two. So try to make sure the carrier volume, that's important. But then the other considerations you have to think about, droplet size. If it's all fine, when you come out of the airplane and explodes with the shear forces coming over the airfoil of the airplane, and your spray just explodes in a fine mist. Well, a fine mist, that may not be the best thing for for making applications on a, on a corn crop, because those small droplets, if I'm in a situation where it's low relative humidity, the surface area in all those droplets is pretty high, the water can evaporate. And if it evaporates, I now don't, my spray is not going to be able to hit the canopy. So I'm losing carrier volume right there. So, and the fines, they can also float around a little more. And so I need the, the product to be able to penetrate into the canopy. The ear leaf is the most important leaf for photosynthesis in the, in the on the the plant because the ear leaf is the longest and the widest and it's closest to the ear. So for this, the leaf that produces the most photosynthetic that goes right in that grain. Well, that's well down on my canopy. I need to make sure that I can get down there. And that's why it's important to do control. Look look at droplet sizes, the role of adjuvants. Adjuvants are really important because they can help reduce the evaporation of the droplets to make sure that they retain their mass to help penetrate. And because I have limited penetration, the droplets that do get down on my targets, I want them to spread across the surface because coverage, coverage is the important thing for a quality of application. And adjuvants play a huge role in delivering it to my target and then spreading it across the leaves. So adjuvants are critical for, for these situations when you're trying to get canopy penetration as you do on corn plants. So can you do as well with an airplane as you can with a ground rig? Yes, you can, but you need to be more conscientious about the little factors that can affect the performance. It's much more, there, there's there's more environmental factors that can negatively impact an aerial application than with a ground rig. Ground rig, my boom is close to my target. I have, I'm spraying at 15 gallons per acre, preferably 20, but 15 gallons per acre, that covers a lot of errors. So, uh, so there's different things that come together to affect the quality of the application. But again, like I said, timing is the most critical. So airplanes have to be part of the equation in order to get over all these acres in a timely fashion.
1: Randy, talking about this difference between aerial and ground and different application methods, you know, we've done a little bit of work looking at UAV application of fungicides and other products. Where do you see that in the future? Do you see that being a big part of the market, a big part of the puzzle? Because I think a lot of farmers are interested maybe in picking up one or two.
2: Oh yeah, UAVs are going to happen. Because you've got more maneuverability, more control, uh, and the fact that we have, we, there's, we, we can make more planes, but we can't train more pilots. Uh, there's not as many crazy people out there willing to be a crop duster. So that's maybe <laughs> one thing. But uh, So in order to be able to access these acres, we have to do one of two things. We have, have to change application windows, and we're looking at making earlier sprays and trying to see if we can, can expand that window be twi- be beyond that VTR2, or we have to have more ways to make the application so we're looking at chemigation that's that's been a standard tool if you've got overhead irrigation you got center pivots and drones is one way we can get to a lot of fields and when you got things like wind turbines and power lines and things which can really interfere with other forms of aerial application drones could be a a real neat tool we're still learning how to make these things work they've been using drones to make applications in the far east for a long time so they've got a lot of a lot of knowledge over there that we're trying to build off of that. But those tend to be small fields and nice confined areas. So the situation is quite a bit different there. Also with drones, we've got to worry about the limited carrying capacity. They've got battery power. Those different things come into play. So they want to cut the carrier volume down. And what we've noted, we've known is eh, guess there's a risk there. So we still have a lot of things to learn about making sure that our application quality is good with those drones. But I do believe it's going to be coming. And it's it, it's it is already it's already here in some cases. There are companies out there that it's their job, their, their business model is spraying crop protection products on on fields. So they're out there, but it's incumbent upon us. I know I'm doing research trying to find out how we can improve the performance with these drone applications and give some guidelines to say, okay, if you're gonna spray up a drone, here's the critical things you need to be thinking about. We're talking about droplet sizes and and there are some drones out there that don't have a boom. They have all the nozzles situated underneath the props. Others have a boom. But well, what's the difference there for quality of application? There's a lot of different things we're learning, and hopefully we can give some good guidance as to what, to, what the watch outs need to be in order to make the applications. If quality applications are efficacious,
0: Randy, kind of to wrap this up, you obviously have a really neat job where you get to have uh, kind of a sneak peek into the future of our portfolio, uh, also our application methods, whether it's drone technology. Uh, Are you optimistic about the future of of managing disease, disease management in U.S. cropping systems? And if so, what most excites you about the future of agriculture from a fungicide or disease perspective?
1: Oh,
2: yeah, this is a little bit sick and warped, perhaps. I kind of like that when a tar spot pops up. Man, that's a twist. That throws us <laughs> a curveball. And that's the kind of stuff that kind of gets me gets me excited because, whoa, this is something brand new, unexpected. But having grown up on a farm, I understand how all these components come together in agriculture and how it's it's what's exciting is Looking at the different tools we have and how a small adjustment over here can make a big difference in the overall picture, and trying to put them together, it's a it's a constantly moving, repainting itself picture, and that's what makes it so exciting because it is so it is always changing. And I, like I'm, like I said, 36 years in the company, and every year has been different. So I don't expect that to change anytime soon. What I love is when you talk to somebody out in the in, the, in the world, he goes, "Oh yeah, but don't look at this year. It wasn't a normal year." And then I said, well, could you point out what would be a normal year for a baseline for me? Nobody has ever been able to tell me that 2000, whatever, that was the normal year. And I can use that for a reference point. So because things are different, it may kind of look the same at first, but then things happen to make it exciting because it's it's never the same every year.
1: Well, Randy, this was a great conversation. I, I know I learned a lot. I appreciate your time here today. I know I know we both do. Before we sign off, is there a way that a listener maybe heard something that kind of piqued their interest and want to learn a little bit more? Do you have a recommendation on where someone can go to either interact with you or uh, learn more about some of the things you talked about? Well. Yeah,
2: we've got our, our field staff, they're, they're good. So these guys have access to a lot of the information. I've slide decks I've built, they've got access, access to those things. So contact your local agronomist, uh, your bear, bear representative. They can hopefully answer some of your questions. They've got slide decks and resources to get a hold of it. And most of these guys that are out there also know how to get a hold of me. So if they have a question that they're not sure about, I'm always open and accessible to, to be able to answer those questions.
1: Sounds great. Thanks again. I appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.